morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. Welcome to the first week of Advent here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We're excited to gather with you on Facebook and YouTube as we begin our Advent season, as we walk into this period of time where we are following along with the readings and the celebrations of the Christian calendar uh, beginning on this Advent uh, Sunday Uh, November 29th, 2020. Many of you know because you've been a part of uh, more liturgical Christian traditions in the past that this really is sort of the Christian New Year. This kicks off the new calendar for the Christian calendar and that as we move through this calendar, not just for the next four weeks during Advent, but all the way through Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and then finally Pentecost, that that entire period of the Christian calendar is really built and organized so that our celebrations and our readings across those weeks and months really unpacks the story of the gospel for us. And so that's what we begin to embark on today as we enter into Advent and trying to understand what it means to be waiting and expectant for the promises of God to come. I want to invite you to join with me today as we jump into our first Advent reading, which you've already heard from Isaiah 64. And we're going to take a look at it a little bit more closely and ask God to speak to us about how it is that we can be prepared for the coming of God's promises in our life. Would you just join with me in a word of prayer first? God, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together across social media, across YouTube and Facebook and gather, even though we are spending time uh, distanced from each other in order to protect our health and to protect the health of others and those who are more vulnerable. During this year especially, we pray that this Advent season would be a time when we can flesh out all of our hopes and expectations, how it is that we are anticipating your coming into our life in new and fresh ways. If there's ever been a year when we feel like we need that desperately, God, it is this year. And so as we open up the book of Isaiah today and we read what your poet and prophet Isaiah has to write, we ask that you would speak to us in a fresh way, that you would prepare our hearts for the coming season of Christmas. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we took a look at uh, a psalm. We spent actually the last couple weeks looking at psalms. And last week, uh, in keeping with the Thanksgiving holiday, we talked about the importance of giving thanks and gratitude and how that practice of giving thanks and gratitude is a kind of intentional decision. That whatever might be going on in our lives, when we recognize the good things that we have, the good relationships we have, the good blessings that we have been given, that that isn't in any way a denial of the very real challenges or difficulties or sufferings that we might have, but rather that it's simply our spiritual practice that we are recognizing the good things too, and that that makes us spiritually healthier and spiritually stronger. This week, I want to invite you to look with me at the lectionary reading for this week from Isaiah chapter 64. You've already heard it today 
for our Advent candle lighting, but I want to revisit it and just pick out a couple of passages in here that I think will be helpful for us to understand what it means to be a people who are gathered around Scripture during this Advent season and what it is that we are preparing ourselves for during this time. So look with me back. If you don't have your Bibles, you can go ahead and look on the screen. We'll put the words up there. If you do have your Bible, just turn with me to Isaiah chapter 64. We're going to pick it up there in verse 1. It says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble in your presence." This psalm, or excuse me, this passage from uh, the book of Isaiah is sort of the, the reverse image of the psalm that we read last week, which sort of charged out of the gate with gratitude and thanksgiving. This passage from Isaiah is just the opposite. It charges out of the gate with a lamentation or even really a complaint to God, a kind of expression of frustration. And I love the way that Isaiah puts it in the very first Verse, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And I know that I've felt that way. I'm sure that you have felt that way in your lives, that when, when there are things going on that you just can't understand, when there are relationships in your life that have become incredibly difficult or toxic or dysfunctional, or you look around and you wonder how it is that the world seems to be spinning out of control and it's impacting you in a very real way. I know that I have felt exactly this way, that I've sort of shaken my fist to the heavens and said, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. We all know what it's like to be in that place where we we read these old passages, these old stories from the Bible that depict God as the kind of God who does just that, who seems to rip open the heavens and step onto the earth and bring that power, that fire, that judgment, that sort of conquering uh, personification of a warrior God to finally vindicate God's people and conquer God's enemies. And that is exactly what Isaiah is appealing to now. Isaiah is, of course, a prophet who is speaking on behalf of the people of God in the ancient Near East, the ancient Israelites, who are experiencing much more difficult things than the kinds of circumstances I might face every day. These are a conquered and humiliated and subjected people, people who have been carried off by foreign nations, foreign armies, and are wondering where their God is. And just like I mentioned a moment ago, Isaiah, as their representative, their prophet in this passage, he's asking that same question. If you look at verse 3, he says, When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Isaiah is appealing to God with these old stories, these old narratives where God did seem to sort of step out of the heavens and onto the earth and the, the mountains shook and, and God's enemies were fearful. And Isaiah wants to know, where are you? Where is this old God that we used to serve who seemed to come out of nowhere and rescue us? In other words, the opposite of gratitude is happening here. Isaiah is bringing his prophetic complaint, his prophetic lament, 
and asking God why God won't intervene, why God won't make all things right again. And then an interesting switch happens. Isaiah begins with that sort of lamenting, like I said, that sort of complaint. And then if we pick it up again in verse 5, you'll see that Isaiah switches from a lament, a complaint towards God. He switches to a more introspective mode. And he says this in verse 5, You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. And we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, here is a familiar passage, and, and for those of you who maybe who were raised in more controlling, more heavy-handed, or more condemning expressions of religion or Christianity have maybe heard this passage as a way of condemning you, of making you feel like there was something deeply wrong with you and that's why God wasn't rescuing you or meeting you in the way you expect. And of course, it's this passage in verse 6 where Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. This is a passage that too often is used to condemn people who more often than not are very good at condemning themselves. And I think one of the problems with reading passages like this is that many of us were given a very particular lens for how we read Scripture. And that lens usually goes something like this. All of the Bible, all the words in the Bible are God's words written to you. Many of us were told that in Sunday school or taught that in a Bible study or maybe you heard that preached from a pulpit. And so when you come to a passage like Isaiah chapter 64 and you read, all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth, what you're hearing is God thundering from the heavens to you. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how sincere you might be, none of it matters to me. It is worthy, it is, it is worthless and filthy in my sight. But I want to just offer you an alternative way of reading this passage because, you know, we don't always have to read the Bible as though it was God's words to us. In fact, if you just look at the context of Isaiah 64, this is not God speaking to Isaiah. This is not God speaking to the people of God. Remember, this is a lament. So this is Isaiah speaking to God. And that's an important shift that sometimes we need to learn to make with Scripture. Sometimes Scripture is written as though it is God's words speaking to us. Other times, Scripture is written as our words spoken to God. And that's exactly what's happening here. Isaiah is pouring his heart out in a very poetic, very powerful, very image-rich way to God. And what Isaiah is wrestling with here, what he's trying to understand is why in the world God won't come in power the way God was depicted coming to rescue people in the past. And so these words, all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth, that is not God condemning Isaiah. That's not God condemning you. That, rather, that is Isaiah trying to understand why God might not be revealing God's self to him. 
why God might not be revealing God's self to us in our place of dire need? Is it because we've sinned, God? Is that why you have withdrawn from us? Is it because we have offended you in some way? Is that why you refuse to rescue us in this time of need? And make no mistake, I'm not suggesting that we don't all sin. We do. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't times when God makes it clear in Scripture that God is upset with the people of God for failing to keep their promises. Certainly God is depicted that way. But what we have here is not some sort of uh, cruel and vindictive God who is casting aside your best efforts. What we have here is Isaiah trying to understand why God won't come and rescue them. And so when we read this passage that, that way as Isaiah's words to God, then we get, I think, a very different picture. What we begin to see in Isaiah 64 is not God's condemnation of man, but rather we're seeing how Isaiah, through his prayer, through his lament, through his complaint, is being transformed and changed as he encounters and engages with God around these important questions. And I think a key for understanding part of what's going on here is mentioned a couple times in this passage. We see it first in verse five. Isaiah says this to God, you meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways, right? So here's Isaiah trying to make sense of why God has not shown God's self in these difficult circumstances, and he's reasoning with God, you show yourself to the people who do right, therefore, perhaps we haven't done right. But you were angry and we sinned, and because you hid yourself, we transgressed. Isaiah stumbles upon this idea in verse 5. Because you hid yourself from us, God, we transgressed. I want you to see where there is uh, another way of, of reading through this passage and understanding what's going on. We, we see this again in verse 7. If you skip down, Isaiah says in verse 7, There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. Right? Isaiah is talking about his contemporaries. He's talking about the people who exist now in his time and in his day. Perhaps because God has hidden God's self, they have... They have ceased calling out on God. And he says this, second half of verse 7, For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Twice there in those passages, Isaiah stumbles upon this notion that God has hidden God's self from God's own people. And this taps into a, a fairly a well-known sort of theological idea and sort of fancy theological speech. Sometimes we refer to this as sort of the rhythm between Deus Revelatus and Deus Absconditus, which are just sort of fancy Latin phrases that mean the God who reveals himself and the God who hides himself. And what we have in this passage is really Isaiah representing that back and forth rhythm of the God who reveals God's self and the God who hides God's self. We actually see this throughout the narratives of Scripture, that there are times when God seems to reveal 
who God is and what God's character is and intervene in the lives of people. And then other periods when God seems to withdraw or, as Isaiah puts it, hide himself from God's people. I remember uh, last week I told you all about one of the worst jobs I've ever had. Uh, But one of the best jobs I've ever had actually was a job I had in my mid-20s when I worked on a golf course of all places up in the mountains in Utah. I worked at a city golf course and I just loved that job. And I've told you guys about this job in the past. One of the reasons I loved it was because I could show up every day and I could do something that was really concrete, really tangible, and I could see right away whether I'd done a good job or a bad job, right? Like when you go to work every day and you jump on a lawnmower and you mow the greens or you mow the roughs, you can see immediately the results of the work you do. And oftentimes in ministry work or human service work of all kinds, you don't get to see the immediate results of what you did. And so I just really loved that job. And one summer, I showed up for work one summer there at the golf course, and the golf course had decided that summer to plant a bunch of new trees all over the golf course, in particular where there was a new driving range. And so I was put on the crew of people who had to plant trees over by the driving range. We planted like dozens of trees on the back side of the driving range to protect the road that was on the other side of the driving range so that you know golf balls uh, wouldn't go out onto the road and break people's windshields as they drove by. But one of the things that I learned that summer, uh, because we planted a couple dozen trees, was there are right ways and wrong ways to plant trees. And one of the things that I learned that I never knew before is that when you plant a new tree in the ground, it's obviously really important to water it, but it's really important not to overwater a new tree. And so we would dig a big hole in the ground, of course, and we'd put the tree in there and we would, you know, uh, open up the root ball and expose it. And then we would, you know, throw some water in the pit and then we would cover it up. And after we got done with all that, my boss, uh, my supervisor came to me and he said, all right, I want you to come out here And he gave me certain intervals and he asked me to water the trees at certain given intervals every couple of days. And it was really important that when we water the trees every couple of days that we put uh, the watering, the hose, on a kind of very slow drip and let it water for a very long time. Because he said, you know, if you water these trees too fast, too often, then the trees will be overwatered, and not only will the roots be sicker, But the roots of those trees will never dig deeper into the soil because they're getting more water than they really need. So the key to planting new trees, he said, is to water them less frequently, but to water them longer. So the roots would, over time, as that water began to evaporate, the roots would be encouraged to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in order to find the nourishment that they need. That in a a nutshell is the idea of of God's revealing God's self on the one hand and God hiding oneself on the other. That when God comes and reveals God's self to us, that when God engages with us and waters us with his grace and mercy lavishly, that we are nourished and taken care of. But in those periods of silence, in those periods of quietness, in those periods when God is hiding from us, we are encouraged to stretch ourselves out and dig our roots deeper as we seek that nourishment from God. That, I think, is what is happening with Isaiah and the people of God here in chapter 64. 
You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote that I think illustrates this very well, but it can be a little bit hard to hear because of the language that he uses. And I want to read it to you now. And as I read it, I just want you to keep in mind that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this while he was in prison during World War II, and he'd been in prison for coming against Hitler and the Nazis and trying to overthrow Hitler from power. And for that reason, he's thrown into prison, and of course he's suffering and in a very hopeless place. And here's what he writes in Letters and Papers from Prison. He says, God would have us know that if we must live as men who would manage our lives without God, The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. The God who lets us live in the world without the working hypothesis of God is the God before whom we stand continually. Before God and with God, we live without God. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which He is with us and helps us. And one of the reasons I think that can be such a hard quote to hear and to read is precisely because our idea of God, our concept of God, is that God that Isaiah is wrestling with at the beginning of this chapter. It's this notion of a God who tears open the heavens and violently invades the earth and and subjugates his enemies like any other tribal warrior and vindicates his people and does all of that with a vengeance. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that is not who God really is at all. And we know that in the Christian tradition Because the God that we worship is revealed through Christ as the God whose power is manifested in weakness. The God whose ministry to us to conquer sin and death for us took the form of being put on a cross and crucified unto death until he was resurrected. This is who God really is. What's happening here, I think, of course, is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is feeling the absence of God as he sits in prison, and his roots are reaching deeper so that he can become stronger and nourished and more mature. Let's just end it by looking back again at Isaiah chapter 64. I want you to see where the prophet sort of ends up and comes full circle in this passage. Look with me at verse 9. After wrestling with the the complaint at the beginning, why won't you come down, O God, and rescue us? And then after entering into this period of introspection, this wrestling with whether or not it was sin that has chased God away, then what we see happening is in Isaiah 64, verse 9, the prophet comes around I think, to a place of depth, a place of maturity. And he says this to God, Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. So however it is that we have sinned, for whatever reason it is that you have hidden yourself, do not be angry anymore. Remember us. And then second half of verse 9, he says this, Now consider... We are all your people. 
And I think what's happened here in this passage is that the prophet Isaiah has come full circle. Isaiah has changed and grown and developed as he turns these words of frustration towards God, wrestles with what might be going on here, where the prophet lands ultimately is the realization that whatever the reason is that God has hidden God's self, whatever the reason might be that God's people are struggling and suffering, he finds his hope, his security, in his identity as the people of God. God, for whatever reason it is that you're angry, for whatever reason it is that you have withheld yourself, remember, we are your people. That, I think, is Advent. Advent is that time when we say, we don't know why things are so screwed up, we don't know where God is, but however hard this might be, we know God is good and we know we belong to God. And that is the hope of Advent. If we wait expectantly for God's promises to be fulfilled, we acknowledge our frustrations, our fears, our suffering, but we stand firmly in the knowledge that God is good and we belong to Him. Would you just join with me in a word of prayer as we close today? God, we thank you again for these words. We thank you for how uh, these passages from uh, the Psalms and from the prophets are so uh, richly packed with imagery that we can identify with. Uh, they're so richly evocative of the emotions that we feel even today, several thousand years later, and that they contain the hope that we can still cling to as we wait for the unfolding of your promise in our lives and in our world. Over these next few weeks, as we continue with Advent, would you just reveal to us how it is that we can continue to be faithful to you as we wait for your promises to be fulfilled. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Well, hello again, you guys. It's me again. I'm back because this week, unlike usual, I'm actually making the announcements today because I have only two announcements, but they're really important announcements for our church. And I just wanted to take a moment to unpack them a little bit for you. The first is many of you know that we have a regular monthly book club at the church. It typically meets the second Thursday of every month. And what happens with the book club is it's great. We have a group of people who get together and they choose a set of books and we just come together for about an hour and a half once a month and we talk about what we've read and we unpack those things. Well, this next book club is coming up on December 10th at 6.30 p.m. And we have chosen a really important book for our, our, our congregation. It's called Trouble I've Seen by Drew Hart. And this is a book that deals specifically with anti-racism and white supremacy. And this is, as you all know, a topic that's very important to us at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We have always been concerned about racial issues and particularly the violence and the poverty and the discrimination uh, that are suffered by black Americans especially, but also Americans of all ethnic groups, all minorities in the United States. And all of that, of course, came to a real head this last summer when there were several very high profile shootings of black people over the summer, including Breonna Taylor, 
uh, and uh, George Floyd, and, uh, were, which were just the most recent at the time shootings of black Americans by police in the United States that uh, we are that we have all been a witness to one way or another. Now at the time last summer we responded as a church by doing uh, a book reading around the issue of the school to prison pipeline and what came out of that was a desire to explore the idea of putting together some anti-racism programs and trainings here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. And that's something that we have planned longer term. Uh, by next spring, we are hoping to unveil an anti-racism program here at Oceanside Sanctuary that anybody could engage in. But this book that we're gonna be discussing in December is key to that. And so even if you're not normally a part of the book club, I just wanna really encourage you to consider stepping into this one meeting on December 10th and engaging with this book and engaging with this content. If you care as much as I do, as much as our leadership here at Oceanside Sanctuary does, uh, if you care as much as we do about racial equity and racial justice, then I wanna invite you to be a part of that book club. You can go to the website at OceansideSanctuary.org, just click on the calendar and click on December 10th, and you'll see the book club listed there. And there's a link to the book so you can get it for yourself. And also there's a form so that you can RSVP for the book club. We'd really love to see you there. We'd love to see you uh, help us to lay a foundation for our anti-racism efforts in the future. The second announcement I have for you is that it's the end of the calendar year. December is right around the corner. And for those of you who have been here for a while, you already know this, but for those of you who are brand new to our church, you may not know that we very rarely talk about money at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We know that churches, unfortunately, often are known for manipulating people and making them feel guilty and pressured around giving. And sometimes that looks like big speeches given every Sunday about why you should give and how God wants you to give. And because we know that that is handled so poorly in many churches, we really don't talk about money on Sundays. We offer you an opportunity to give, but we don't really dwell on it. And before COVID, when we were meeting right here in this space, we don't even pass an offering basket or an offering plate on Sundays. Instead, we just ask you to give if you believe in what we do. However, twice a year, we do talk more about money and we create fundraising campaigns so that we can meet our goals as a charity and pay our bills. And one of those times every year when we have a fundraising campaign is at the end of the calendar year. So the month of December is here, which means it's time for our year-end fund drive. And December is an important month for us. You know, typically about 20% of all of our giving throughout the year comes in the month of December alone. And so we really take time every December to ask you, if you really care about what we do, if you believe in what we do, then we ask that you would consider making an extra charitable gift to the Oceanside Sanctuary sometime in December. So if you're a regular giver, you give a certain amount of money every month or every week, like Janelle and I do, then in December, we're gonna ask you to please consider making a little bit extra of a gift towards our church so that we can continue to do what we do. Our goal this December is for us to raise an extra $25,000 beyond just our regular monthly giving. Last year, our goal was $20,000. 
and you guys were incredibly generous and we blew that goal out of the water. This year, our goal is to raise an extra $25,000. So we've upped that goal a little bit so that you can help support all of the impactful things that we do here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. If you are willing to make a year-end gift to us to help us uh, do the work that we do, then it's very easy. Just go to oceansidesanctuary.org forward slash give, or you can just go to the website and look up in the upper right-hand corner and you'll see a box there that says give. Just click on it and that will take you to our giving page. And we are really looking forward to uh, meeting or hopefully exceeding that goal by God's grace and by your generosity. If you have any questions about any of that, if you have questions about uh, where our money goes or how any of that works, please, I hope you'll feel free to reach out and ask me or reach out to some of the other leaders at Oceanside Sanctuary and ask them. We believe in being really transparent about our money because we know that that helps build trust. So thank you again for all those of you who have supported us this year. Uh, we couldn't do it without you and we ask that you would just take a moment to consider how you might be able to help us uh, in our fundraising drive this December so that we can reach that goal. Thanks again, everybody. God bless. Have a great day.